Please turn in your Bibles to Roman uh, to Exodus chapter seven. We've been studying the book of Exodus, and we come to a very uh, puzzling and striking statement or phrase that occurs over and over in the early parts of Exodus. Phrase that seizes our hearts, namely, where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What is this hardening that God does of Pharaoh's heart? That that was the plan was spelled out to Moses when God first called him from the burning bush, told him to he was going to send him to Pharaoh. And it's stated again here in chapter 7, verse 2. God says to Moses, Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You notice uh, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. A.W. Pink, in his Gleanings in Exodus, says, uh, that this verse brings before us one of the most solemn truths revealed in Holy Scriptures, the divine hardening of human hearts. What was the purpose of God doing that? Well, he tells us in uh, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Pharaoh's heart being hardened would give opportunity, space, to bring great judgments on Egypt and to prolong the process of deliverance and in the prolonging for God to display to the world and Egypt his power, his miracles, his wonders, his sovereignty. That would give opportunity and thus the Egyptians would come to know who is the true God. In verse 5, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Egypt from among them. The Egyptians had many false gods, and these judgments, the ten plagues that God sends, were directed against false gods of the Egyptians. In chapter 12, in verse 12, it says, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You know, it's mercy when something happens in society, in the world, in our lives, that shows us who's God. The worst thing that could happen to you in this world would be to go through this life and not understand who the true God is. And whatever gets your attention and shows you who the true God is and what He's like, 
short of it actually leading to your death and damnation, is a blessing. The worst thing that could happen would be for you to go through life or our nation and not know who the true God is. Well, God would show them through this series of judgments that he was the true God. And he would show the whole world through this series of judgments on Egypt that he is the true God. In verse 16 of chapter 9, verse 14 of chapter 9, he says, For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants, Pharaoh, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 16, And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. God's name being declared throughout all the earth. God would get himself a reputation that would last for hundreds and thousands of years as a result of this action, where men would understand his power, what he is able to do. Uh, suppose Billy Graham were to go to Russia and were to announce that uh, if you don't let all the Jews in Russia go, God is going to begin to send judgments on this nation. And uh, the Russian leadership laughed at him. We don't believe in God. And he says, all right, tomorrow there will be a flood uh, that will flood this whole area of the country. And tomorrow there's a flood. And the next day there will be uh, a plague of locusts. And the next day there's a plague of locusts. You think God wouldn't get a reputation around the world if he reduced uh, Russia to just utter... Uh, disaster in plague after plague brought upon him in a short time. That's what happened. And uh, it, it gave knowledge of who the true God is. That's his purpose. Of course, he's dealing with a rebellious people and a rebellious man in this process. Now, the problem that we have with the story is it doesn't seem right somehow. It seems unrighteous of God to harden a man's heart. Here this poor man wants to do God's will and God keeps hardening his heart. Is that the way it is? Uh, doesn't seem fair to Pharaoh. Doesn't seem right of God. Over in Romans 9, if you look at Romans 9, Paul discusses the principles behind such dealings of God. Uh, Romans 9 and... Uh, in the setting the context of Romans 9, in the opening verses of Romans 9, Paul is discussing a question that perhaps has troubled you. If God chose Israel to be his people, why is it that most Jews don't believe in him? Why is it that most of the Jews rejected Jesus, their Messiah, when he came and ever since? Most of the Jews do not believe in Jesus. Why is that, if he chose them to be his special people at that period of time? And today, most of them are still in their trespasses and sins, not forgiven because they have rejected God's way of salvation, his son, Jesus Christ. Why is that? You know, he promised Abraham, 
I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. Has the promise failed? Has God been unfaithful to his covenant promise? That's the question that he starts off with. And he says, no, God hasn't failed. We misread the promise. God never promised that he was going to be a God to all of Abraham's physical descendants. If you read the promise carefully, you'll find there was a limit, a limitation running along with the promise. For instance, when Abraham had children, Ishmael and Isaac, he said, I'll be a God to Isaac, but not to Ishmael. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. This promised seed, he will be one of them and they will descend from him. Then when Isaac had children, Jacob and Esau, he said, Jacob is going to be the one that I will be a God to. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, have I repudiated. And uh, that statement was made before the children were born. Uh, made to Rebekah, their mother. The children being not yet born, says Paul, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, not the children's works, but according to God's choice. The purpose of God might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. The younger will be the privileged one. And Paul says that's indicating a choice of God to be a God to Jacob and not to Esau, to bless him, and so on, to save him. Now, that's the context. And just the way I stated it there, raises the question of fairness. Is it fair for God to make a choice, the children not having been born? Verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is that fair? Is God doing something unfair, unrighteous? God forbid. God can't do anything unrighteous. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It says God expressly claims the right to show mercy to one and not to another. He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Mercy, if God shows someone mercy... What's his condition prior to the receiving the mercy? He's guilty. He deserves punishment. But God decides not to punish him as he deserves, but instead to show mercy. Is God obligated to show everyone mercy if he shows anyone mercy? Does the governor of the state of Alabama have the right to show mercy to one prisoner and not to another? Certainly. Has he done the other prisoners wrong if he shows mercy to one? No, he's dealing with them in justice. He's dealing with the other in mercy. Shall not the sovereign Lord on high dispense his favors as he wills, choose some to life while others die, yet be just and gracious still? Shall not God have the privilege that we accord to the governor or to the president? If he shows mercy, that presupposes guilt. All the world guilty before God. And God shows mercy to one, says Paul, and not to another. He expressly claims that that's one of his principles in dealing with the human race. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't desire the salvation of all men. 
He does. It says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he hadn't seen fit to bring all to repentance, to show mercy in that sense on all. That's one of the principles of his acting in this world. The Israelites were idolatrous. The Egyptians were idolatrous. One of the problems that God had with Israel during the Exodus was their continued idolatry. God would have been perfectly just had he showed mercy to the Egyptians and not to the Israelites. But he chose to serve to show mercy to the Israelites. Now, uh, the consequences of that being a principle of God's dealings, not just then, but now, throughout history, what does that mean? Verse 16. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. When one man comes to Christ, believes in Christ as God the Son, his eyes are opened, he sees his own guilt, he sees his need of a Savior, he sees that Jesus Christ was God's answer to that guilt. God the Son coming into the world, taking on humanity, and then becoming a substitute for guilty man, assuming our guilt, being punished in our stead, the wrath of God poured out on him, deserved for us. When a man sees that and then commits his life to Christ, Lord, you did that for me. You offer me forgiveness. I come to you. I accept that gift. I trust you as my Savior and I surrender to you in true repentance as my Lord. If that's happened to you, how did it happen? You say, well, uh, how did it happen? The reason I became a Christian, I paid attention to what you were saying. That's how it happened. The reason I became a Christian, when that group called on me and sat out in my home and went over this, I yielded my will. That's how it happened. When I was growing up in my home and my parents presented this to me, and they said, you need a Savior and Jesus is a Savior and you need to commit your life, I commit. That's how it happened. True. But why did you commit your life and your brother didn't? Why did you respond when that team called on you and the next home they called on, they didn't respond? Why? Why? It says, so then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showed mercy. The reason you responded was that God showed you mercy. Trace it all the way back to him. That's what Paul's saying. John Newton understood it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, said Newton. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. God showed me mercy. I never would have responded in the first place. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Oh, God, you've been so merciful to me. Ah. Now... That doesn't mean that willing and running, studying, turning from sin, all that's not important. It is. We're commanded to do it. But it means that, as Charles Hodge says it, these words are not intended to teach that the efforts of men for the attainment of salvation are useless. They simply declare that the result is not to be attributed to those efforts, but to God. Now, he confirms what he's been saying with another quote. 
the one we've been looking at, verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. I brought you onto the stage of history in, as king here. I raised you up and made you king that I might demonstrate my power. He didn't show mercy to Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh. So he sums it up. He says uh, in verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he harden. He didn't show mercy to Pharaoh. He did show mercy to Moses. He didn't show mercy to your brother who's not a Christian. He did show mercy to you. That's what he's saying. Well, what's involved in this hardening process? That bothers us. How did God harden Moses? Um, it could be that God permitted Pharaoh uh, to harden his own heart. There's a sense in which if God doesn't soften your heart, it'll just get harder. You were born with a sinful heart. Did you listen when I baptized that baby? Did you hear what I said to those parents? I said, this beautiful little girl is a sinner. And they said, yes, she is. <laughs> I said, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of His Holy Spirit? Do you acknowledge that she needs renewing? She needs a new heart? That she has a congenital problem? She's born with a sinful heart? They said, we know that. We start off with a sinful nature as a result of Adam's fall. And uh, so if God doesn't soften our heart, it's going to just get harder. It could be that it's bare permission. Of course, he does permit Pharaoh to harden his heart, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. That's the way it starts out. When... When Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, The Lord says to let his people go that they may worship him, Pharaoh said, Who says it? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's hardening his heart. And as you read the account up through or up to the fifth plague, each time it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Here's an interesting book, Hard Sayings of the Old Testament. Walter Kaiser, professor of Old Testament at Trinity Seminary. And he has a chapter on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And he says this, In Pharaoh's case, Pharaoh initiated the whole process by hardening his own heart ten times during the first five plagues. It appears... It says it was always and only Pharaoh who hardened his heart during those plagues, as far as the way it reads. It appears that Pharaoh reached the limits of his circumscribed freedom during the fifth plague, for after that time, during the last five plagues, God consistently initiated the hardening instead of Pharaoh. You, uh, you know, whenever you hear the truth of God, what happens? You have the opportunity to respond to that truth 
or to refuse that truth. Refusal of that opportunity results in a hardening of your heart. And it also conditions you for your next response. Having refused to obey once, it's easier to say no again and easier to say no again. And you can resist God's truth to the point where doesn't even disturb you, where your conscience doesn't even bother you about it. You sear your conscience. Old Halsby, in his book, Conscience, has a chapter entitled, The Degeneration and Death of Conscience. Your conscience is part of your makeup that God designed into man. It's part of the image of God in man. Every man has a conscience. And... Originally, man's conscience spoke accurately about the will of God. When God first created Adam, his conscience spoke accurately about the will of God. But as a result of man's fall, conscience is off kilter. Still there, still operates, but it's not necessarily accurate. It's inaccurate in some ways. So your conscience needs calibration by the Word of God as to what the will of God is. And nobody's conscience is 100% calibrated. Although once you become a Christian, it gets a lot better calibrated that point. But both the non-Christian and the Christian have conscience and operates in both. And as we calibrate it, why, uh, God is using it to convict us. He says this, here's what Housby says, whenever conscience speaks, its message is directed to our will. The attitude which the will assumes toward our conscience determines the future development and work of our conscience. If the will yields to the demands of our conscience, conscience will grow and develop. If the will refuses to submit, our conscience will be weakened. Its disobedience reacts upon the conscience in such a way that the conscience gradually loses its ability to issue categorical demands. A person who persists in his disobedience and refuses to heed his conscience will seek to deaden his conscience and silence it in order not to be continually distressed by and annoyed by it. And he has a section, Conscience Destroyed. If a person has employed deception, uh, so that he lies to himself about these things, an awakening becomes almost an impossibility. This deception leads to the hardening of the conscience. This is spoken of in the scriptures as the hardening of the heart. It is the definite death of conscience. It's no longer possible to awaken it. And therefore, such a person is eternally lost. Another phrase for this, he says, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the sin that has never forgiveness. It's not any particular sin, no matter how gross it may be, but rather it is a condition of the conscience uh, which is the result of a shorter or longer development. It is the fruit of degeneration of conscience. Boy, that's, that's sobering. Something, we see that he permitted, he permitted Pharaoh to harden his heart, but something more is involved when it says the Lord hardens his heart. It's not that God infuses evil into Pharaoh's heart, but... Still, uh, there's something more involved. It's a, it's a judicial hardening. It's punishment for Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. You have an illustration of this in Jesus' teaching. 
And look at Matthew 13, if you would, and hold your place in Romans 9, but look at Matthew 13. Matthew 13 and verse 10, at a certain point in his ministry, Jesus has been ministering publicly for several years. At a certain point, he starts teaching in parables. This is something different. This is a new approach. His disciples are puzzled. They say in verse 10, why speakest thou unto them in parables? You're just confusing them. And verse 11, he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to understand these things, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. The person who has light and he follows the light receives more light and he has abundance. But Whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that that he has. The person who has light, doesn't follow the light, will lose the light. Therefore, speak I to them in parables. That's why I'm speaking in parables. I'm removing light. I've been teaching. I've made it plain. They haven't responded, the great majority. Now I'm in judgment withdrawing light. Now they won't be able to respond. That's why I teach in parables, says Jesus. Verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not. They'll hear, but they won't understand. Neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, fat. Their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. They've shut their eyes when I brought light. They put their fingers in their ears when I taught, said Jesus, they wouldn't hear. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withdraw the light and I'm going to seal their fingers in their ears. And they've chosen their feet. Now, they harden their heart, and now in this way, I will harden their hard heart. And that's it. Wow. That's sobering. Hmm. Well, uh, you get something of the feel. Over in Second Thessalonians, it's put like this. Speaking of the, when the Antichrist comes, Paul says that God, at that point, will send the delusion that men should believe a lie because they didn't receive the love of the truth. Well, notice uh, back in Romans 9 there, this leads to a complaint. Verse 19, Thou wilt say unto me, Why then doth he yet find fault? For who's resisted his will? If, if it's God's will that Pharaoh's heart be hardened, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, why is he upset with Pharaoh? Well, we have to distinguish between God's planned will and his preceptive will. His command to Pharaoh is to yield your heart, to repent, to let my people go, to obey. Pharaoh went against God's revealed will, although the plan was being carried out. Now, the comparison to a potter and clay. God is working with men. Here he shows mercy to one. 
he doesn't show mercy to another. Paul said, it's something like a man who's working with clay, and he makes one vessel to honor. This is a very special vessel. Another vessel, it's not made to honor. In uh, verse 20, uh, Nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, uh, so on, which he had before paired unto glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, God shows mercy to one, not another. Makes one a vessel of honor, another of dishonor. What's the clay he's working with? The clay is not innocent man. The clay is rebellious man. And God sees fit to show mercy to one of those rebellious men and not to another. This other reaps what he's sown. He goes to hell. But in so doing... A side of God is demonstrated. God's wrath and justice. A side of God is demonstrated here in God's mercy. God was even merciful over here in the sense of he put up with this man for a long time, long suffering. And he sent invitations to him to respond and repent. But he didn't. Now, uh, you know, that is, that is, that's, God is God, isn't he? And he deals just that sovereignly with men. And when he shows you mercy, remember how he showed you mercy. He showed you mercy at great cost to himself. He sent his son to take our guilt. Reading about a lady back in the middle of the last century, lived in North Wales. Her child was sick. She lived in a little town. There was no doctor. She had to go over the mountains in the wintertime to the next town to take her little baby to the doctor. And a blizzard set in in the process. She got caught in a blizzard with her little baby on, on foot. And uh, she lost her way there. She descended uh, half frozen by the wet, uh, icy chill, never made it there. She was found the next day dead, frozen to death, curled around her young baby. The baby boy was still alive. That mother's warmth saved him. And uh, here she was trying to get him to the doctor and sacrificing in all of this and then curling up around him so that he would be protected by her body. Well, the little boy survived and she was able to give to the world the leadership of her son, David Lord George, who later became there, your leader in Britain. Christ sacrificed immensely in order to give us this mercy that God had designed for us. Now God is incredibly merciful, incredibly loving. He's also sovereign. He's also holy. And he will punish rebellion. Notice how Paul wound this up in verse 24. He's talking about that vessels of mercy prepared unto glory unto heaven. Even us, he said, look. 
When I write that, don't just think philosophy. Don't just think great principle. Think me. I'm the one who received mercy. It easily could have been the other way. I came to Christ because he showed me mercy. Oh, oh. Tis not that I did choose thee. Oh, Lord, that could not be. This heart had still refused thee, hadst thou not chosen me. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced me in. Else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou didst, dear Lord, on me. My goodness, boy. You know, plagues are falling on our nation. Plague of AIDS, other plagues. What kind of effect is it having in men's hearts? Are their hearts being softened? Are their hearts being hardened? You'd think that with this plague falling, our nation would be on its knees. You'd think that the media people and all the others would be calling us to repent, to turn from these practices. But that's not what I read. I seem to read, isn't there some way we can continue the practice without getting the plague? Men hardening their hearts. What about you? God been convicting you of something and you're not following light? As a Christian... Is your conscience sensitive? When conscience speaks, do you obey? Is your conscience calibrated by the Word of God? And when it speaks, do you obey? Do you follow light? It's dangerous to go against the light. If you're not a Christian, terrible danger. Terrible danger. At what point are you going to cross that deadline? Pharaoh hardened his heart and then, then, he, then that was it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That happens today. To millions of people. Where are you in that? How long have you sat under the gospel? How long have you said, Not yet, Lord. Not yet. Yes, I thank you for dying for me. I believe it's true, but I want to live my own life my own way. Who is the Lord that I should obey? Hmm. There's an awful poem. There is a time, I know not when, a place, I know not where, that marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To cross that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It may not pale the beaming eye nor quench the glowing health. And still the doomed man's uh, way below may bloom as Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know, nor feel that he is doomed. He feels, he says, that all is well. His every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell. Not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is that mysterious line? by which each path is crossed. 
beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost. How long may man go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? One answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart. While it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, uh, have you been, as a Christian, going against light? Some area of your life that God has been speaking to you about, some practice, some habit, some attitude, bitterness, unforgiveness, whatever it may be, and you've not been responding to light. Very, very dangerous. Respond to light. To him that hath shall be given. Or if you're not a Christian, where are you? How close are you to the deadline? Dare you risk hardening your heart? Why not today ask the Lord to come into your life, to give you a new heart, to change your life? If you believe his claims, you acknowledge your need, why not make that commitment? If you're willing for him to come and make changes in your life, pray like this in your heart, if you're willing. Lord Jesus, I realize the folly of hardening my heart. Lord, I thank you for your long suffering that I haven't got a dead conscience. Lord, I open my heart. I ask you to show me mercy. I ask you to come into my heart, give me a new heart change me. I purpose to obey you. And I trust you as the one who died for me. Amen.